Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be putting OJ to bed. Yes, that is meant to be salacious and sensational to get you to pay attention, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, But it also has a meaning in that um, we have been, (laughs) OJ, you know, is the trial of the century and all of that, and um, we just saw on Fox TV uh, the confession, the lost confession, and um, although, as I say, I'm hoping this will be the last of O.J., that our ana- analysis today will be the last words on O.J., um, I really somehow doubt that that's going to be true. He's going to get himself into some other trouble. But for now, you know, it will at least hopefully not be as, uh, as gory uh, and horrific as um, the, what the trial of the century was about. Now, my first guest is Judith Reagan, um, and it was her interview with O.J. that was um, that made up the uh, the most recent or the recent uh, Fox TV show, um, O.J. Uh, the Lost Confession, and it was because she was able to incredibly get O.J. to sit down for this interview in 2006. It's been held in the vault of Fox uh, since 2006, and um, we, you, probably, you, pro- you probably saw it. You probably, it got uh, a lot of attention. And then in the second half of the show, um, I'm going to be talking with Dale Gribau, who is an attorney, and he was a legal commentator during the trial of the century, as was I. So we're going to talk about that uh, later on. But let's get <laughs> to Judith. You know, Judith, I have admired you for years and years. Um, so I am thrilled to have met you recently and to be talking to you. And I just, you know, your career and what you have done and how, what, what, you know, as a powerful woman um, and the books that you have brought to fruition, I mean, just um, that, you know, that's uh, just, you deserve so much uh, respect for that. And admiration, and I have long held that for you. So, Judith, well, thank Reagan, you. I, likewise. <laughs> well, thank you. Judith is a, has a, had a long and award-winning career as a book, book publisher, TV film producer, and television and radio talk show host. She is currently the CEO of Reagan Arts, with an amazing um, stable of books. We're going to be talking about some of them uh, today. And, um, but in particular, um, why, what I would like her to talk about is uh, her, how the O.J. book and special came to be, notably her involvement with O.J. You know, a lot of people don't know, Judith, that you, you were the first. This, um, this book that ultimately came out, If I Did It, was your baby first. And, um, and you know, and then it eventually came out, and then we have this, the, uh, uh, lost confession and so on. So, but you were there at the very beginning. It was it, the it, it started with you. So, tell us about that. Well, it started with a phone call uh, which I received from O.J. Simpson's representative, um, just out of the blue. Called me and said he wants to confess, but he will only do it if he can a call the book. If I did it, he wanted to call it if. I did it, and he would only confess in a sort of hypothetical fashion because he claimed he wanted to have deniability with his children. And, of course, my reaction was immediately I thought this guy was a lunatic, and I didn't think it was a real phone call. I took his number. Uh, I actually was having dinner that night with Tom Perkins, who was on the board of News Corp., and just by coincidence, Rupert Murdoch, because there was a book party, uh, and we were having dinner afterwards, and I said, you know, this amazing phone call came in today. I don't know if it's real. I don't know if it's fake. I don't know what it is, but 
what do you think? Should I pursue it? And we talked about it. And, of course, we both thought it would be a really interesting idea to pursue. And I did. And um, the book, which I would have published, which I tried to publish, which I did, in fact, print over 500,000 copies, which... Oh, really? Yeah, HarperCollins had destroyed before they left the warehouse. Uh, They literally shredded 500,000 books, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, And it was a fascinating story. If I hadn't been in the middle of it, it probably would have been more interesting than, than painful. But um, the, w- there was a controversy that was ginned up. I, I did the interview with O.J. Simpson. I walked out of the interview. It was a four-hour interview. It was a really stressful interview to do because, as you observed yourself and as many people who watched the interview or parts of the interview observed um, when it aired on Fox... I basically had to keep a very straight face. I had to keep what Dr. Drupinski later called, and when when he saw the interview, a still face, so that he would continue to talk and reveal things to me. Um, and I created, in essence, a kind of calm space. I didn't confront him. I didn't criticize him. I didn't talk back to him. I didn't you know, interrogate him in a really nasty fashion. I did it in a way that seemed very benign and non-judgmental and created an opportunity for him to actually, and I believe this is true, tell the truth about what happened that night, what led up to that night, and, you know, how he felt in the aftermath of that night. Uh, And I thought it was really um, traumatic and riveting and pretty amazing. And when I walked out of that interview, I received a phone call from somebody inside of of, uh, Fox News telling me that I was about to be killed, smeared, fired, etc., etc. And Fox News put on, um, they were cutting promos for the interview. This was back in 2006. They were cutting the promos in a truck outside of the warehouse where we were filming it in Miami. And they were sending those promos to Fox News in New York. And Fox News used those basically as an opportunity to hammer me. Uh, Bill O'Reilly called in from Australia at one point because he was on vacation, you know, made disparaging remarks about me. But there were, there were lots of personal attacks against me. Um, saying that I should be fired and this was a disgrace and this was so horrible and how dare I. And, of course, at that time, many people, and Katie Couric had, in fact, in the years before that, interviewed O.J. Simpson. No one had succeeded in getting him to talk about the night of the murders. Uh-huh. They interviewed him about his golf game. They interviewed him about, interviewed him about sports, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. They were not criticized, but th- for whatever reason, um, I was, you know, nearly destroyed. There was a defamation campaign that was run against me. Wait, and wait, then in the I... middle of that... Yeah, go ahead. In the middle of that, um, the Browns and the Goldmans, who were uh, the two families of the victims, jumped in. They had not seen the interview, of course, and they had not read the book. Um, And they basically got upset about it and blamed me for it. Um, And suddenly I became... I became the the object of their, you know, ill feelings about the whole thing. Yeah, I was the anger, fired. The anger that they took And the out. anger. And the anger, The anger yeah. that they had um, towards OJ, they put on to you. I just want to stop you here for a minute because me. I want to comment on a couple things. Um, you know, I, I was amazed, I've told you this before, how you, that interview, I, I had asked you if you ever had any psychiatric training because the way that you played that interview was amazing. And it wasn't just that you didn't, um, you know, act, uh, that you didn't act judgmental or whatever. It was that, you know, I'm sure I would imagine inside, while he was saying these things, which were more and more clearly 
looking like he really was confessing, not, you know, he dropped the hypothetical. I mean, you must have been right. thinking to yourself, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm getting him to confess. Like, it must have been yes. so hard to contain those excited feelings, you know. I, I can't believe it. I got him to confess. Well, I was on pins and needles the whole time, and of course, when he started talking, I thought, oh my God, you know, this is unbelievable, and he really is. He could not really talk about it as a hypothetical because it actually did happen, and so he would slip into, yeah, I do remember the knife, and of course, there were very personal details of how he was feeling, and, you know, the weeks leading up to this, and I should understand how he felt, and... um, You know, there were so many specific personal details, and his anger, of course, and his resentment, and his, you know, jealousy, and his rage, all of it came out in that interview. It was stunning, and I was sitting there thinking, I can't even believe how much he's actually revealing. And, of course, I did not reveal how I felt. Yes, that was the important part, because... Um, if you had shown even a little smidge of your recognizing that he was telling the truth, of, then he would, that would have shut him down right away. Absolutely. Because he would have realized. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting because many people in the law enforcement community who deal with interrogating people, mm-hmm. I had a guy from NCIS who wrote me a note and said, are you formally trained because uh-huh. you did the, the interview the way I have interviewed al-Qaeda terrorist suspects. Uh-huh. And I've also had other people from the psychiatric community comment about that. I have no training in that. I certainly have spent many, many, many years interviewing people and trying to get them to tell me things. Um, but it was an, an instinctive feeling that I had just from spending so much of my life you know, 40-plus years interviewing people and also working with people on their memoirs and creating a kind of safe place for them to talk about things that are painful and difficult. So Although now, I think in... Go ahead. Yeah, I think in his case, he was venting his anger. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's clear in that interview that he was angry. They may be... Phys- when he said, Nicole and Ron may be physically dead, but they killed me... Yes. That really said it all. Yes. Um, can you explain a little bit more? I mean, you were probably going there when I interrupted, but um, why everybody wanted to kill you? I mean, I presume that it's because, um, because they thought that you were making money, you know, that you would make money with the book, that you were making money off of a tragedy. Right. Um, well, if that's how they felt, there were certainly many, many, many people who had written books. Jeffrey Tubin, uh, who recently had a, his book made into a television series. There are commentators. There are people in the news world. There are people, you know, how many books were written in and around this whole subject? I, I don't know if that was the issue, or I think, I think that there was a lot of anger about the whole O.J. thing, and I think people were reacting to how the story was first presented by Fox News, not by me, but by Fox News. And the way it was first presented was as a very negative thing. And I, I really think sometimes people are sheep and they just go along with how the story is presented instead of actually looking at the facts and understanding what's real. You know, what's real is this actually was a confession, you know, and in terms of, in terms of, you know, the credibility of that confession, I think anyone watching it, aside from OJ's lawyer, I have not heard any comment from anyone claiming it was anything but a confession. So I think there was a rush to judgment. But, wh- um, but why were they and, hitting and, you? I mean, I'm, I'm still... Well, that was, that was, I think, a personal agenda that was created by one individual who had a lot of power in the media business who decided to create this, this opportunity for him to smear me. And huh. that's what they did. Um, and it was litigated and everything was settled and it was a really ugly moment. Um, but... 
you know, it's interesting. I think the big lesson is that people need to seriously question anything that they see or read and, you know, try to listen to or discover the facts of something before they judge something. So I don't think anyone... You know, the Goldmans ended up suing to get the rights to the book after they went on television and criticized Mm -hmm. it and said it was a horrible thing. They ended up getting the rights, and they published the book themselves. And after the fact, after they had a chance to read the book, they said, my goodness, this is a confession. And they published it. Mm -hmm. So the book, you know, was published by another publisher, we did all the work. We put it together. I hired a ghostwriter. I, you know, we edited it, copy edited, proofread, designed, did the whole thing. Uh, we were never paid anything. In fact, we lost uh, millions of dollars wow. because of it. And um, the Goldmans ended up owning it and publishing it. So, you know, we could argue the constitutionality of all that all day long, but once... I was fired, and HarperCollins decided to um, let it go. The Goldmans published it, and it was a number one bestseller. Hmm. Do you and think HarperCollins regretted, uh, when, it, when it became a number one bestseller, do you think they regretted letting it go, <laughs> uh, destroying I mean, all those I, books? I certainly think that it would have been a number one bestseller if it had been published at that time, whether people... Uh, you know, sometimes the media, individuals, certain individuals in the media might express outrage, but that doesn't mean that the greater public um, feels the same way. And also, maybe some people feel that way, maybe some people don't feel that way, but, you know, as a publisher and someone, I have published many, many controversial people over many, 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 many years, and my job as a publisher is to make things public. So to publish means to make public. Mm. Doesn't mean I agree, doesn't mean I approve. I've certainly published a lot of political people I don't agree with, and some I do agree with. But my personal feelings have nothing to do with what I decide to publish and what I don't decide to publish. It, it was always, you know, for me, based on a, a number of different things. So... I do believe that people have to keep in mind that the role of the publisher is to make public. And, you know, if people want to scream and yell that we shouldn't have free speech in America, they might want to think about that before they go screaming and yelling about Mm -hmm. it. Because what it resulted in, uh, you know, whatever outrage was ginned up by Fox News, uh, that fake controversy resulted in the burning of 500,000 books. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a good thing for anybody in a democracy. I don't think that because something is controversial or might offend somebody or might upset somebody that you should decide not to publish it. So that's just my personal view. I think that that's a slippery slope and can lead to a lot of dangerous things. Well, I think at least um, on a positive note, um, I mean, this, this obviously, you got fired over it, you, you had lots mm-hmm. of, it turned your life upside down, and at least you got some redemption, or I don't know what you, some positive. Oh, I got redemption, so much redemption, I can't even tell you. The man who was responsible for the smear campaign, he got brutally fired and is uh-huh. no longer with us. The lawyer who tried to steal from me and was a nightmare during this whole thing, an individual I fired, he, he ended up in prison for 25 years. The accountant <laughs> who stole money from me, he went to prison. Like every step of the way, very few people get to see justice in their lifetime. And mm-hmm. for the people who have done really outrageous, amoral, despicable things, just to me personally along the way, Pretty much all of them have had some really bad comeuppance. <laughs> so, Karma. Not, you know, I guess so. I mean, uh, the things caught up with them. 
so I did sue. I did have a, a you know a good result from my lawsuit for the defamation and so on. Um, you know, I fought. I fought. I won. I was victorious. You know, things were made right. And in terms of the airing of the OJ interview, you know, it's further vindication because it was a confession. It is a confession, and I do think, in some ways, it's it's. It's probably not the final word, but it's at least some resolution because he does confess and you get to see in that interview, you know, inside the mind of a sociopath and a man who has not a speck of remorse feels that, in essence, his ex-wife had it coming and is still angry at her for killing her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's shocking. What did you think of it? <laughs> well, you know... I mean, um, uh, well, I th- yes, I think that it gave closure to a lot of people who suspected all along um, that he did murder them. I mean, yes, we had the civil trial that resulted in his having to take responsibility, but that wasn't quite as satisfying as a criminal trial if he would have been found guilty in the first place. So this, right. uh, your interview, you know, airing um, gave people, you know, closed... I uh, gave people some sense of closure that, yes, indeed. Uh, of course, on the other hand, though, um, it also showed people that, yes, the justice system isn't perfect. Um, you know, we, uh, they missed the real verdict that should have come down from it. So that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. part of it, too. Well, I know we, we yeah. don't have that much time left, but I, I want to um, at least mention um, some of the books that you have coming out that are amazing. Um, what, the first one, actually... Sometimes amazing things happen. Heartbreak and Hope on the Bellevue Hospital Psychiatric Prison Ward by Dr. Elizabeth Ford. You don't you probably don't know. I mean I don't know why you should, but I trained I was a I trained at Bellevue. I was a chief resident at NYU Bellevue and I spent a year on the um forensic unit, uh including wow. going up to the prison ward. So I'm going to have to read this book. In fact I'd like to have her on my show. Um, yeah. It's an amazing, amazing place. So I'm sure this book is, uh, you know, I, I, one of the memories I have is of going into someone's um, cell on the prison ward in Bellevue. And uh, they, I rushed in there because they, I can't remember now what the thing was, but they had to get me to convince him of something or other. And I rushed in and I didn't read his, <laughs> because, you know, at Bellevue, you're kind of trained to think that you can, you know, you're, you're very powerful, right? So I didn't read his notes. And it turned out um, that he was a murderer. <laughs> like, I don't uh, remember yeah. if it was a serial murderer or a, just a horrendous kind of murderer, not your run-of-the-mill murderer. And, um, and there I was, um, locked in the cell with him. But, you know, that, ah. that's... I mean, actually, even in the work that I do now, I wind up um, not necessarily... I mean, it's not a cell. The, the Bellevue Forensic Ward, where there are cells, are really jail cells where you are absolutely right. locked. In it's not like an an office door where you typically would interview people where you could leave. This is a your right. life. You have to call the guard to let you out. Um, another one, Lionhearted by Andrew Loveridge about uh, lions, <laughs> including the lion Cecil, um, who uh, you know that what an what a majestic lion and what an unmajestic end. A dentist, I a know. dentist from Minnesota. Can you believe that? <laughs> who, by the way, lured him in, do, uh, Dr. Andrew Loveridge, who is the author of this book. He's a zoology professor at Oxford and has spent his life studying lions, and Cecil was one of his study lions, and he had tracked him for many years. And uh, so he discovered, because he'd been tracking him, that A, they took off uh, the dentist or somebody that was on the hunt with him, took off the the, the tracking device, but he took 10 hours to die. They lured him with the carcass of another animal. So while he was feeding on the animal, they killed him, which is not exactly, does not demonstrate any hunting skills. Yeah. And, you know, he had a really painful death in the last 10 hours of his life. And when you read the book, which is called Lionhearted, it is really a beautiful story about the lives of these lions and the social interactions and the males and the females and the children and the mating and how the males go off together and the journeys that they take. And 
It wasn't a subject that I had any great personal interest in, but when I read the manuscript, I was so moved by it. Now I have, you know, a great deal of interest in it because it's it's a really moving story about about lions and their social lives, which well, I thought me, was fascinating. Let me suggest if you haven't have you taken a safari, an African safari? No, I haven't. Well, let me suggest um, that you do that. That was one of the things on my bucket list that I checked off. And in Zambia, they have a, an, a, an, a place where you can walk with the lions. You actually walk in their, um, uh, you know, where the parkland or wherever, the, in the jungle, wherever, right, right. wherever they are. And you, you can pet them. I mean, they're, they're real wild lions, but um, they give you this tip, and in 10 minutes they tell you, you know, how to move a stick this way or that way if they start coming at you. <laughs> not, very, not very comfortable. Wow. I just thought yeah. you'd love it. Um, I just want to mention one of your other books, The Audacity of Inez Burns by Stephen Bloom. Um, that, you know, as I was reading about this, uh, I thought to myself, what a great movie or a great television yeah. series. And in fact, it is going to be a television series, right? Yes, yes. It's an incredible, you will love this story, The Audacity of Inez Burns, because it's about a woman who comes from the wrong side of the tracks, no education. Her father dies of alcoholism in a bar when he's 38 years old. She mm. has no options, no education, turn of the century. Uh, America in San Francisco in the early 1900s, and she uh, ends up becoming one of the richest women in San Francisco, and her life is one of treachery and uh, politics, incredible politics. She, she becomes an abortionist, very controversial, but if you read the book and you see the history uh, at that time, it is so riveting, the history of San Francisco, which was a wild town full of crazy men who were running wild all over the place. And Inez Burns took care of a lot of women who needed help. I love this book so much. Yes, yes. It's quite a, it's, it's an epic. Um, it's an epic, and it's amazing. It's like... And you see what San Francisco was really like at that time. I think it's an actually a very important piece of history. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, our time is coming to a close. Um, I want to thank Judith, Re- Judith Regan very much for sharing uh, really some personal, uh, your personal story. And I want to give out the website because if you go to this website, which is reganarts.com, R-E-G-A-N, arts. Um, you will see a, a buffet, an amazing buffet of <laughs> amazing works. And uh, so, you know, that, that's something for you to, to uh, put on your shelves. So thank you so much, Judith. It was really a thank pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Carol. And now we need to take a break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol uh, Lieberman, and we will be right back, so stay tuned. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Uh, talking with you, continuing the show of putting OJ to bed. And uh, during the first half, as I hope you heard, um, uh, Judith Regan talked about uh, her interview. It was her interview that hopefully you saw recently on Fox um, of OJ. It was, um, it was essentially supposed to be a hypothetical. It was the lost confession, and it was the confession that she obtained in 2006. And it is amazing because um, clearly he lapses into not really talking about hypothetical anymore, and he just gets kind of lost in his story, and it's quite clear that he did it. <laughs> um, now my guest um, is Dale Gribau. He is an attorney um, in, um, in Palm Desert, Palm Springs, and he was, is voted, has been voted from 2011 to 2018 as top lawyer by Palm Springs Life and Top Lawyer Inland Empire Magazine. He uh, has, been, has been the man of the year seven times, including of the City of Hope and the City of Palm Desert. He's received numerous awards for his legal work and especially his uh, community involvement. Palm Springs Life has selected him as top lawyer for DUI, personal attorney. And, oh, and he, this is, I wanted to ask you about this. Dale Gribau Day has been declared four times. Now, what is Dale Gribau Day? I don't know. In, Be- in Beverly Hills, uh, I had days named after me. You know, it's been so long. It's like the OJ case. Uh, it, this is a past lifetime. I haven't even thought of it. <laughs> and other than asking for a bio, I would have forgotten it ever happened. <laughs> just part of my part of my past, kind well, of like OJ. Um, I forgot it happened. Well, as, as another part of his past and why he's going to be talking to you today um, is the fact that during the trial of the century, the OJ trial, he um, was a legal commentator, as you may know, was I. Uh, so, uh, for all of those reasons, <laughs> we're going to be. Uh, I'm going to be asking you to weigh in. Um, you saw the Fox. Uh, television uh, documentary, the show, um, The Lost Confession. And what, let's just start with that. What did you think of that? Well, it was disturbing and chilling. Uh, I had been convinced that O.J. was guilty from uh, the beginning, though if, it had been held, if the trial had been held in another jurisdiction, uh, it would have been a much stronger case. Whenever you're in front of a jury of your peers, and for O.J. that meant more of an ethnic group, uh, there's a better chance that someone will re- relate to him and think that uh, the police uh, plant evidence and do things wrong and find an excuse to find him not guilty. And, and in essence, that's what happened. It was a jury of nullification. It was, there, it was the jury's way of uh, getting even with, quote, the man, unquote, for all of the injustice that uh, uh, certain groups uh, felt had been uh, thrown at them. Uh-huh. And so, but, but what, what struck you in particular about the interview, about his confession? Well, he tried to couch it in saying, if I did it, this is what happened. And it seemed pretty clear from the way he was talking and looking at his body language, look, looking at his, his face and what he was doing with his movement of his hands, uh, it just looked to me like it was the uh, a statement or or uh, an admission of a guilty man. Yes, yes, absolutely. He um, 
he really he really got into it. It was a long interview, and he was getting more and more into uh, telling it from from his first person rather than and and exactly. without the if. Um, now you before we um, during the break, you were starting to tell me a story about how uh, you were sort of involved in a personal way. Um, before the OJ trial began. So tell that story again. <laughs> well, I had gone to USC with OJ, so I knew him from college. And, oh, really? And we all, you didn't? Oh, and, well. We all, and we all knew uh, that he had constant fights with his wife, Marguerite. I lived a, a block or two down the street, but people would talk about his fighting. Uh, Shapiro was my best friend from law school. I introduced him to his wife. And Garcetti was a classmate of mine from USC also. So I, know, I knew all the players, and I talked to them throughout the trial, and I would never tell one what the other was saying. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, got a, uh, I talked to Shapiro when OJ was arrested, and, and Shapiro said, uh, uh, did you hear that OJ just got arrested? I said, yes. I was surprised he didn't call you or me. He used to call me for parties at 1 in the morning, uh, when I was sleeping, uh, and he was still married to uh, uh, Miss Brown. Uh, you mean he called you to come over to a party at one in the morning? No, he called me to find out where the parties were. I I had How been president you supp- of a, oh, you a, a bachelor that- group in Beverly Hills. We oh. lived in Beverly Hills at the time, and we had just sold our home on Mahon, and we're moving here to the desert to Bighorn. And so we were in a rented house, uh, and... I saw I saw the, the whole the whole thing the the chase scene was on my birthday where we had a party and we were watching the NBA finals so that part made it very vivid in my in my memory and I grew up in Brentwood uh, a couple blocks from uh, OJ's house uh, where he, he lived after me but I knew the area quite well So wait let's go back to college so you knew OJ in college what was he like in college the nicest guy and, and, and afterwards, there was a club in Beverly Hills called Pips. Hugh Hefner owned it. Uh, Lucille Ball would have a backgammon tournament there every Monday night. And O.J. was there all the time, uh, often with Nicole. And he was a guy who he could be in the middle of cutting his steak, and someone would come, come up to ask for an autograph. He'd put his knife and fork down. Uh, he was very cordial. He had a charming personality. He would sign the autograph, talk to people, and disregard his meal. Uh, he, he, re- he was really a man's man. Other, and none of us saw the angry side of him where he was uh, crazy, at least crazy uh-huh. when he got angry. Well, yes, when he felt that a woman was going to abandon him. That was what it was all about. Um, you know, one of the things that you saw, uh, I'm sure, in the, in the film was where he talks about Charlie, which as a psychiatrist I find to be one of the most interesting, well, the whole thing is interesting, but it's, that, that was particularly one of the most interesting parts because Charlie was, uh, he talks about this man, well, this person, Charlie, um, who told him that there was something going on at Nicole's house that night and it wasn't good and um, he, you know, he essentially blames Charlie for going over to her house that night, although really there was a different reason. It was because when he saw her at the recital, his daughter's recital, um, he realized finally that she meant it, that she wasn't ever going to come back to him. He, he wasn't going to be able to have that hold on her again. And so he, um, that was what finally pushed him off the edge. But anyway, he talks about this guy, Charlie, who um, accompanied him to Nicole's house. Now, Charlie can either be uh, a Jiminy Cricket type character, his conscience, his super ego, because some of the things that Charlie said, you know, was were um, like oh, like oh Jesus, what you did, or something like that. Um, and then also it could be uh, because he was dissociated, because he had a personality disorder, um, was sociopathic and narcissistic, and and a borderline personality traits. Um, he dissociated, so so he could have been hearing auditory hallucinations. Charlie could have been an auditory hallucination. But now there's another thing that Charlie could have been during the trial, as I'm sure you will remember. Um, there was talk of there being a real accomplice, and mostly that talk centered on Jason. 
his uh, son by Marguerite, who'd never liked Nicole because he felt that Nicole took Marguerite, took OJ um, away from Marguerite, away from his mother. And um, so that's another possibility that, you know, calling him Charlie, that could have been. What, what do you, since, I, since you're saying that you live near them, I'm wondering what you think about that. I'm sure you heard about Jason being considered as a possible accomplice, right? Sure, I had heard that, but I'd never heard Charlie before uh, today. Uh-huh. And I, I assumed it was his subconscious talking to him. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think of the um, of those rumors? And certainly, I don't know the truth about it. But um, what did you think at the time about those rumors that that Jason was in, was an accomplice? It was just that a rumor. And uh, as a lawyer, I try not to make uh, judgments until I have all the evidence. Uh, uh-huh. That's a safe me, answer. Was, okay. <laughs> it, it was it was it was just a rumor. Uh, the thing I always worried about was what happened to the knife. And I had my own theory, but no one has what ever asked you. That. I'm asking you, what do you think happened to the knife? If you remember when OJ was arrested, Kardashian took out the golf bag uh, from OJ's, uh, t- uh, he took it with him. And I would bet anything that the knife was inside that golf bag. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, I have no evidence. It's just my, my gut feeling. I, well, I knew okay. Kardashian casually, but uh, I knew all the other players fairly well. But um, why, um, why do you think the police... I mean, what do you think he did with it, Kardashian? Why did the police not find it? Uh, I don't know. I've just never heard anyone talk about the his golf bag... Uh, uh-huh. A- after it was uh, taken by Kardashian. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. And, and Kardashian, in my opinion, uh, was appointed to be an attorney on the case so he could never be cross-examined. Uh, Kardashian didn't really have any uh, involvement with the case. Hmm. He didn't prepare any of the motions. He didn't do the cross-examinations. He was, he was just there. Hmm. And the, o- the only reason for his being there is so he couldn't be cross-examined. That's ex- interesting. So since you knew these people, what happened? How, like, let's say Robert Shapiro, how, you know, he must have been, I mean, how did he feel after he got O.J. off? Um, I mean, obviously he won't talk that was about a, it. He won't talk about it. No, I just saw him uh, Thursday night at the opening of the uh, uh, Dodgers opening game. But he won't, uh, he's never said what his thoughts were on guilt or innocence. And so I don't press him. I mean, he must have, like, when when the verdict was announced, the criminal verdict, uh, I mean, he must have felt proud of himself for for his lawyering in any case. I'm sure he did. If you look at the uh, film of the verdict being read, Mm -hmm. Kardashian seems to be surprised. Uh, Johnny C., uh, was excited and had his arm around uh, O.J. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Shapiro was uh, uh, was shocked too when mm-hmm. they announced when they announced that the, the jury had reached a verdict. We were at the airport in Palm Springs, heading to the wine country, mm-hmm. and um, as soon as we got to San Francisco uh, and and checked into the hotel, I talked to Shapiro. And I said, uh, what do you think? And he says, well, what do you think, Dale? And I <laughs> said, usually when a verdict comes in right away, that's a, a verdict for the plaintiff, for the DA. And he said, that's what Johnny C. and I both think, too. So they were worried. Oh. And, uh, so I prepared a telegram to Gil Garcetti congratulating him. Uh, oh. I had called it, da- called it down, and then the verdict came in, and I told him, don't send it. Oh, my God. Uh, so uh, we we all thought uh, with a with a quick verdict it was going to be a mm-hmm. verdict for the prosecution, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. months before that, because the case was in downtown L.A., uh, it gave O.J. an edge he wouldn't have had yes. if it had been tried in Santa Monica. Santa right. Monica was the proper jurisdiction for a criminal case in Brentwood. 
but we had just had an earthquake and many of the courtrooms were closed, uh, damaged from the, uh, from the earthquake. And they needed a larger courtroom and they needed a courtroom that could handle a long cause case that was going to go on for a long time, a long time. So they sent it to Los Angeles and in, in, uh, Santa Monica, he would have been, he would have had a jury, uh, that would have been more middle class white, uh, and not as susceptible to believing uh, some of the arguments posed by the defense. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's where the, uh, the civil trial was, and he was found responsible in the civil trial. Correct. Right? Now, yeah. what, about when, what did Gil Garcetti say after, uh, after the trial? I didn't talk to Gil after the trial about it. I've talked to Gil uh, quite a few times. I had dinner with him quite a few times in the last couple of years, but I, I don't discuss the case. Gill was, was up for uh, uh, re-election, and if he, had po- if he had placed his best trial lawyer on the case, it would have given that person a chance to run against him. He assigned uh, Marsha Clark and Darden and, and another guy, uh, Bill... Uh, a, a, the most talented of the DAs uh, that were assigned is a guy who had health issues. Uh, I think it was something like a heart attack or stroke or something. And so Darden and Clark had to take on the case without the help of the uh, uh, the fellow who would have been the strongest of the DAs. Hmm. Why didn't they? Uh, why didn't they assign somebody else if this when they discovered that this man had started to have health issues? They. I think they may have had someone else helping out. I'm sure they had people in, in the in the back. Mm-hmm. What's his uh, but, name? It was something Hodge, something. Yeah, Hodgman or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, he, he was he was the least colorful of the group. <laughs> but he was talented. He was a talented uh, lawyer. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and most of us believe that Darden was appointed because he was African American, uh, and to some extent. Uh, I guess uh, Johnny C. was appointed or uh, considered because he was uh, African-American, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnny C. got along with a, an L.A. jury. I had had, I was co-counsel with uh, Cochran on a few matters when I was a young lawyer in the public defender's office. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was a talented lawyer, and people bought into the, uh, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit, and they didn't mm-hmm. pay any attention. To all, to all the blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and you know, it's it was interesting. Then you must have found it interesting in this uh, in in the lost confession um, where he talks about the glove, and he, clearly he's talking about it as if it was his glove. You know, there's that. That's one of the sure. parts where it's so clear that uh, it was it was his. He's saying, you know, not that uh, it was lost or that the, it was planted. Like it's you know here. They tried to say it was planted, but um, he talks right about it, you know, about his glove in the, on the night of the murder. So, but that evidence um, was not available to the district attorney during the trial. Yes. And as Darden said, if he'd known that this uh, show was going to have information like that, he wouldn't have yes. objected to it. Yes, yes. Um, yes, it is sad that this didn't come out beforehand. They had, they had blood, uh, not just at the scene, but I think on his socks, on, on the gate, uh, one, of, one of the gates, there was a, a blood transfer that had both OJ's blood and uh, some of the uh, blood of uh, Nicole uh, or Ron. Uh, I mean, there, w- there was blood on his car handle, as I recall. This is all mm-hmm. from 25 years ago. I haven't thought of this. Well, I think it, in it that is. Time. Um, I, I think someone. I think it might have been Christopher Darden who talked about how they had blood, you know, all over the place from the three of them. Um, yes. So you know, the fact that the jury ignored, even just ignored that, you know, is just mind blowing. It had commingled blood. How else could that have happened? Well, Unless he what happened psych- psychologically, I, I believe, you're, you're, you're the doctor, but I believe people decide how they 
want to vote as a juror, and then they look at the evidence that, that supports that position. And O.J. was a very, very, very popular, likable guy, uh, and though he had never really uh, been active in, in the African-American community, he, he played more with the white uh, the whites in West LA than they did with the blacks in East LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet they just they they looked at him as one of one of them, and uh, that he was being harassed by the police, like uh, many of the, them and their friends had been uh, right. by local police. Right, like Rodney King would be, and so on. Um, well, we're kind of getting close to running out of time, so. Um, tell me, just answer this. What do you think, now that O.J. is out of jail, what do you think is going to become of him? It's hard to say. I mean, he's, no one's going to take the money away from him. That's why he, he's in Nevada. He's, he's pretty protected there. Uh, I, think he'll, he, I don't think he'll ever rise to prominence as he once was. Uh, I think he'll just leave, live a life uh, that is going to be uh, a more regular life, and, and quite honestly, he would never have gotten the sentence, the sentence he got in Vegas, if it hadn't been for the yes. uh, not guilty verdict in L.A. That that kind of crime didn't deserve yes. a prison sentence, in my opinion. Yes, that it did seem kind of ridiculous. And the interesting thing is that the, he committed that crime um, and was arrested on the day that the book finally came out. If I did it. And uh, I, at that time, I, when I was doing interviews, I talked about how he did that on purpose, um, or at least not that he wanted to get arrested, but that he, you know, decided to get his stuff back on that day because he felt like the book had been taken from him, and and he wanted to uh, distract attention from the book. Do you remember that? I, I didn't remember that it was the same day. Uh, that, that's interesting. Yes. Uh, but I just didn't think what he did in Vegas trying to get his own things back that had been stolen from him. Uh, right. I didn't think that warranted a prison sentence. And I'm not sure I would have given him anything more than probation were I the judge. Right, right. Yes, that's true. Well, we need to, we're coming to the end. Um, I will, let me uh, thank you again for being on the show, Dale Gribau. He is a top lawyer, as, as I was uh, Reading before, uh, a top lawyer decided by Palm Springs Life and lots of other places <laughs> from 2011 to 2018. Um, so, I will, can I give, let me give out your website. The website sure. is dalegribolaw.com. Dale, D A L E, Gribow, G R I B O W, law.com. Well, Dale, thank you so much for sharing your insights, all these personal connections that I didn't even realize about. That's really fascinating, so thank you. It's my pleasure, my pleasure, Carol. Thank you. Keep up the good work. <laughs> thank you. And thank you Bye-bye. all for listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Um, I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 